So with your health, have you ever heard someone say, oh, look, that's just how I'm wired or, well, it must just be my DNA. It's kind of like fate, isn't it? No matter how healthy you are or what you do, it's like sometimes there are chronic illnesses or other health concerns waiting for you under the surface, baked into you as a person, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's kind of depressing when you think about it. Well, imagine you can control this. So modifying your DNA, turning your genes on and off like switches to improve your health and well-being. Imagine your genes weren't your destiny. Well, it either sounds like witchcraft or it sounds super interesting. And if you're like me, I find it really fascinating. And my guest today is someone who's dedicated a lifetime to studying the science behind it all. Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Valerio Vitone. And in this discussion, we're going to be talking about epigenetics, nutrigenomics, and some of the common health problems that can be treated with these emerging scientific discoveries. I am by no means going to pretend that I'm an expert in any of this team health tech. So I'm here with you. Let's get curious and learn together, shall we? Collaboration starts with a conversation, Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Dr. Valerio Vitone. He's got a PhD in biochemistry, molecular biology and virology, to identify complex conditions relating to disease. He's held key research roles in Australia and spent a lot of time analyzing DNA sequences with bioinformatics tools. With some key technological advancements in this area, his focus has been honed in on personalized DNA research for patients and treating them with an epigenetics and nutrigenomics approach and personalized DNA-based diets, supplements, and lifestyle advice. Hey, Valerio, how are you doing? Hello, I'm very, very well. How are you, Peter? I'm really good, mate. Really good. Thank you so much for making the time today and exploring a topic that I can tell you we've definitely not explored on the show, but I'm super grateful that you've made the time to come on and we can deep dive into it and learn a bit more. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure and an honor. I have to say it's a great opportunity to speak about this absolutely pioneering new science that is emerging, has been emerging the last decade, that is going to influence all our future medical treatments and what we call integrated medicine. So a type of medicine that goes beyond the medication that is really aimed to look after the patient in a moralistic way and specifically to look after the patient in terms of really ascertaining the underlying causes of disease and not just giving you a tablet. Wow. And that's what a lot of the healthcare professionals these days, especially the new generation, they're moving in that direction. And it's a fantastic time for an old person like me, like an old scientist <laughs> like me to jump on board and we had all those technologies that we were dreaming of all those technology in the, the first part of the century when the human genome project was underway. So yeah, very happy to be here with you today. What a great scene setter. Look, I think firstly, it'd be good to get a little bit more of an understanding of yourself and your background and what's led you to this point. Do you want to give us a bit of background? 
Yeah, so I did my PhD. I'm a biochemist and a molecular biologist. I did my BSc with honors at the University of New South Wales. Then I moved into viruses. I hope they are today. But <laughs> I did my PhD at the Westmead Institute for Medical Research with Professor Tony Cunningham, which now, incidentally, is a member of the New South Wales COVID-19 Vaccine Committee. And he's investigating all those new molecules to counteract the COVID-19 variants. And the old story in our lab started then, because in 2003, roughly when I was doing my research there, we had the SARS. And I was investigating a virus called herpes simplex virus type 1, which causes the common blisters on your lips, the cold sore virus. <laughs> But what is important about this type of viruses is that they all share an overall structure that is very similar. And I started my career by looking at the molecular structure of this type of virus. It's a bit what they are trying to do with the COVID-19 now, to look at the spike proteins and to see how it infects people, people's cells and so forth. My role was looking at protein-protein interactions, a bit like our legal cloned legal blocks would aggregate together. And then by looking at their three-dimensional structure, they, what we say, they're conformational changes, which means simply that you look at the shape of a molecule and then you're trying to find a Velcro sticky tank, which is made of oligopeptides, which are amino acids, to disable the entry of the virus into the cells. And that was my main focus. But at the time, because I was cloning all these molecules, all these genes that the virus had, and then I was putting them together with this specific technique called the uh, to hybrid systems, I was also able to use the first platforms that were available in terms of bioinformatics. So I was analyzing all these DNA sequences and looking at potential mutations that these proteins might have in terms of functions and in terms of how they could affect human health from a disease perspective. And that was absolutely cutting edge then. Now it's becoming the norm. And what's happening now that we didn't have then is that we had to manually analyze sequences and make inferences about protein functionality or in the way the mutations would affect the particular cellular response. Now you've got the amazing innovative step of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And introducing that has created a huge revolution, a game changer, because in essence, we are still scientists and we are still looking at that, but we got the machines helping us to look at complex interactions and complex DNA mutations on a much larger scale so that we can focus our attention as a human being to a much more directed approach in terms of solving biological problems. So the machine is not really a human being that you go, okay, I'm going to solve the problem for you, but it's sort of filtering all the information for us to get to the point in which we can really focus our attention on the strategic planning, either to disable a virus or to create a better treatment for disease in the case of epigenetic treatments, for instance. So after that decade, we had a, a major innovation, which we called NGS, Next Generation Sequencing. 
And that changed the way in which we can sequence DNA in an enormous fashion. So to just give you an idea, in, in 2000, when we had the human genome program, we used the Sanger method, which was the standard way of sequencing DNA. And Professor Sanger won the Nobel Prize for it back in the previous century. Like, then with that methodology, we spent about $3 million to sequence the genome. And it would take an enormous amount of time. Today, with next generation sequencing, we spend $300. <laughs> wow. And it takes three days. So oh. it's unbelievable. And the accuracy of these methodologies is unparalleled. So here yeah, we have next generation sequencing. There is a methodology in which uh, there are, uh, you can amplify DNA sequence very fast, little fragments, a bit like Tetris. And then there is artificial intelligence that put the segment back together to give you the entire map of the human genome in an amazing way. So it cuts the timing beautifully. And this innovation brought about the exciting field also epigenetics because, and we'll get to that in a second, because when you have this ability to sequence DNA so fast, then you can run experiments with thousands of patients, DNA experiments in which you can correlate their genetic blueprint to different health problems, for instance. And this type of experiments, they are called genome-wide associated studies. And as the term implies, they are on scoping around the entire genome of a patient or a very large set of genes. And by doing this, we created an enormous amount of data available. So multiple correlations between these mutations that people have naturally, which we call single nucleotide polymorphisms. There's single letter mutations that they are very important to your health. And we'll cover maybe a bit more in details later on, but just to give you just a really Simple explanation is if you change one of the letters in the, one of the genes, a single letter, you might create a really big effect sometimes that they might create a positive effect in terms of your health, a negative effect, or none at all. But by analyzing millions of these variants with uh, tools with AI or these bioinformatic tools and correlating them to disease, now we've got an amazing way to increase what we call precision medicine. So to target treatments according to your unique variations. And there are millions of variations that they are just relevant to you as an individual. I think that that's a really nice kind of explanation of how we got to this point. And I have learned so much already in tying together all of these bits and pieces too. I think that I can definitely understand the rapidly more accessible testing and everything from the $3 million to the $300 and from many weeks to a couple of days. And then also add in some AI and some other tools like the bioinformatic tools. And we get to this point where we are now with what people are talking more and more about, which is precision medicine. So I can see how we're tying that in. You talked about epigenetics and I think nutrigenomics as well in there. How does that relate to me as a person individually? Like, do I know what my epigenetics and my nutrigenomics look like? Yes. So first of all, what is epigenetics and nutrigenomics? And then we'll move how it relates to us. Well, 
Epigenetics is really that science that studies how external factors like, I'll give you an instance, pollution, stress, drugs, addiction, food, even your mental state can influence how genes, and you said it in your introductions, are switched on and off. And this is a profound science advancement yet again, because the great point here is that you cannot change your DNA. You inherit your DNA, the sequence is inherited by your parents, but what was not known previously is that together with your DNA, you also inherit the settings, the switchboard where you are born for your parents, and that can be modified, the good news. So, well, it's a good and bad news because if you inherit, let's say, a switchboard from parents who are being a little bit naughty or just not knowing, you might have all the lights in your house being turned off, and then you have to make sure you turn them all <laughs> during your lifetime to make your life going back up again. So. That's what epigenetics in really high term is. And it comes from the Greek word epi simply means outside of, or in addition to genetics, the genes. So there are additional factors that are influencing genes to be turned on and off. And he has a profound implications in our health. And now the reason why I mentioned those single nucleotide polymorphisms or those point mutations before it become apparent now, because what happens is that we all have those mute variants that we were talking about, differences, minor differences in the DNA code that make us genes behaving differently. Okay. Now, when we are actually trying to influence the genes, the way they are switched on and off varies a little bit depending on these particular variations. So that's why it's so crucial to know both the DNA sequence, the variations, and also the outside factors that are influencing them. And I'll give you a typical example, very simple, like stress. Stress, I think, is the most common negative epigenetic change that happens in all our lives these days in Sydney, Melbourne, New York, you know. Once you have stress, let's say financial stress or stress commuting to work, lockdown stress, you actually achieve a negative epigenetic effect that influences how, let's say, you produce some cortisol, which is a stress hormone, which is obviously regulated by different genes. So in some individuals, let's say that they got a negative variant in which you are more likely that this cortisol is more effective in your system. So it has a more negative effect to your health than let's say your mate or the neighbor next door. Then you really have to pinpoint the positive epigenetic effect to decrease that cortisol level so that you don't develop other comorbidities. Let's say you don't start develop anxiety, depression, or on another level, auto-inflammatory responses that they are connected also to cortisol or developing things like type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance. That's why you see a lot of us when they're stressed, we put on weight, we got problems with our liver, we got a problem with our rheumatoid arthritis, or we got a problem, we get itchy and we start having some type of inflammatory response. 
the other beautiful things about this is that we have found out for those studies that I mentioned before, the genome-wide associated studies, that there are a lot of overlapping genes that they are not just regulating one problem. They are regulating multiple problems. So they are at least correlated to multiple comorbidities. So let's say you've got one of the inflammatory molecules and in science we call interleukin-6 or TNF-alpha, they are technical terms, but just to give you just the name, there are major cytokines that the immune system, even during COVID, secretes to elicit an immune response. If these cytokines are too high, they are not just, the, let's say, make you heat or scratch, but they're also causing you mental problems or neurological problems they could, because they cause brain inflammation, they can cause depression, anxiety, ADHD autism, OCD, you name it. So, and that's the beauty of this new science, that with one epigenetic change that you implement through the diet or through lifestyle changes, you can have a positive multiple effects that they can alleviate, mitigate, or resolve some of your health conditions that you might have as an individual. Yeah. That's so fascinating. And following through and listening to what you've said there, there's a few directions we could go here, but I'm curious to know about some of the trials or experiments or the work that's been done to validate all of this and that's helping with this new science. Who are some of the main players here? It's interesting because it's really a cooperative undertaking through government bodies, let's say like the American NIH or the European Genomics or the CDC with private companies. And it's ironic, it's it also been recently a little bit controversial in a way, and I'll give you the three main players. The first one that brought, if you want, it was the Tesla of epigenetics and DNA was 23andMe, probably. 23andMe is this massive corporation in which they started to have this type of commercial DNA testings to give you an idea of your overall traits. Let's say, oh, you got pointy ears, or, or you're more likely to develop a weight problem, or you're more likely to be better in this type of sports. So they were analyzing normal human traits and potential problems in your health in a very general way still. I, they still do it. But by doing so, now they, I think they got six, seven million tests that they've done or more now. It's a huge amount of data that has been created. And the reason for this is because when they collect the sample, they might give you, let's say, a limited amount of genetic information that is not the entire genome, but they sequence a lot of DNA that is not in the report. So all that back data has been then exchanged with institutional research teams to actually investigate large number of patients in these large trials. The genome-wide associated studies, one, and also another type of studies that is correlated to that, which we call epigenome associated studies. I know it's a tough one, to, but the epigenome <laughs> what epigenetic, what epigenome associated study are, they are looking at the switches, they start. They are not looking at the variants, 
but they are looking at all how the switches are switched on and off, on and off. And then that data from these large institutions in Europe, the US, together with companies like 23andMe or Ancestry is another major one, the inheritance one that you all know, that you're aware of. The technology is still exactly the same, very similar. So you get this amount of data that then is being given to these scientists across the globe, and they create a huge amount of data. A typical instance is the, is the uh, epigenome-wide-associated study ATLAS, in which uh, there are these large databases that they are shared globally so that you can analyze, as I said, the switches, the epigenetic traits, or the variants in terms of SNPs. And 23andMe was the initiator on a big scale. Now, we recently went to the next level for this, and this is the work of Professor Church, the famous geneticist at Harvard University, that two years ago launched Nebula Genomics. Nebula, maybe here in Australia, is not known yet. <laughs> we are a little bit lagging a little bit, but Nebula now is the new frontier in terms of DNA testing commercially. They are able to sequence the entire human genome, giving it to you. So the 20,000 genes that we have, they give you the entire sequence and an enormous amount of accuracy. So it's absolute and it's commercially available from 300 to $1,000. So the amount of that, obviously Professor Church is, has been involved in the human genome. He has been there for a lifetime. It's probably his life achievement, this company now, because it's really going to be a game changer in terms of Again, pushing the boundary to the next level because now having, having nebulizing and having, uh, and they use next generation sequencing to do this, they can sequence the entire human genome. And they also got a really good platform that they give some, they correlate the data with a lot of the genes to the scientific literature studying the actual disease correlations or phenotypic correlation, we say in science, phenotype in genetic means simple having a trait that you're trying to correlate to your genetic. Let's say you're tall with blue eyes and you've got a bad temper. <laughs> we are able to get all these variants that are connected to your behavior. This is another huge element in this field. And it's also the controversy of this because the next question to this is, this gives an enormous power. In the sense that we are able to tell things about you that would definitely make you jump out of the chair. In the sense that personality traits, propensity to become uh, OCD, bipolar, being more prone to having an addiction propensity to alcohol, as well as beautiful things. So it's really a tool like uh, when invented, uh, when back in prehistory we had the fire and you put light a camp and cook your food, or you could burn the forest. <laughs> and this is totally up to us, but certainly, and this is the thing that is crucial here, that alongside in having the genetic testing, and this is the, now it will make you smile because what we are also doing now is protecting your DNA from third parties. So. And that's where Nebula and people like them also, I think now they are playing in a big role because they are sequencing the genes in a way that's totally anonymous, but not just that, 
the next thing that they are setting up now is blockchain games like Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Nice. <laughs> nice. So it's the decentralized system. And that size is a big fan of that. Being having the genes on blockchain, no one has the control and it's so protected by the system in itself. And that's another major element now in the next five to 10 years that all these companies, that's what I said, even with our genetic testing, we keep all the genetic information completely off the web. And we call, I mean, completely confidential. They cannot be exchanged. It's a prerogative of the patient to decide whether they want to share their information for a scientific project, let's say, which is absolutely great. And that is absolutely legitimate and it should be done in many cases. As I said, we need, we need that. But at the same time, you want to know where your DNA is actually gone. It's a bit like when your cookies on your web browser, <laughs> you want to know how, how the information is shared. And that's why Nebula is doing that with blockchain, other companies like the one we are using in Germany, they simply keep the DNA data off the web. And then another company that has created a huge innovative step is Viome, which is using a messenger RNA transcriptome technology in terms of your microbiome this time. So they are not sequencing the DNA of yourself, but they are sequencing the DNA of all organisms in your microbiome. And not just bacteria, bacteria, fungi, archaea. I know they are technical terms, but viruses. But in your microbiome, you don't simply have bacteria. There are a lot of organisms living there. It's like a galaxy of people doing different jobs. And the microbiome is also interconnected to our biology. So this is another element, another degree of sophistication that we are really looking at epigenetic traits for us. And also we are looking at uh, a messenger RNA level DNA sequences of the bacteria that they are integrated, they've been co-evolving with us for billions of years. Now we know that it's really like the microbiome. That's why a lot of scientists now think we should really say microbiome is an organ because it is. There is so much biochemical cellular connectivity with the vagus nerve, the immune system. It's really a biochemical city that is able to cross talk with our brain, with our immune system, and we cannot function without the other. If you want it, it's a total symbiotic relationship. I'm reflecting on all of this and we're going deep into understanding, getting a full genomic sequence on the blockchain, which is super exciting, by the way. And that's like doubling down in terms of my interest in terms of emerging tech and science, but then also the sequencing the genome of your microbiome and all of that. How much of this is actually getting to the point of being used on a day-to-day in healthcare? You know, me as a patient living my life, at what point am I actually going to see any of this kind of research and work being done in like in what I do? From your perspective, well, the answer is, and you'll be excited now, is now. <laughs> I'll give you an instance. With our system, we use biome data that when you do a microbiome test, immediately they collect the stool sample and a blood sample. You send it to the US, you wait six weeks, it comes back with your complete microbiome blueprint. 
together with how the balance between bad and good bacteria and their metabolic pathways are acting on you. And then we couple that to an AI platform and is able, and this is the first example really commercially with Biome that is emerging really in a big way. That's why people like JSK, big pharmaceutical company, they're actually talking to them because this is massive, massive, that once you got that information, they're able to give you the exact type of prebiotic and probiotic strain, the amount that is actually just for your microbiome to correct it to the right level it should be. So in other words, when you get your gene test, I'll be able to give you your precision mezzanine cap now with exactly the right strain, the right amount of probiotics you need to take to correct, let's say, your IBD, IBS, to make your anxiety better. And it's so precise. You actually work really, really well as we speak. And the diet. So the actual app is able to say, well, you cannot eat, let's say, this type of fermented, it's a bit like a FODMAP diet, let's say. You can't eat this particular type of vegetable because you've got this specific bacteria in you. They are higher than normal. So they're bad bacteria. We don't want to give them extra food to make more damage or to make you more bloated. We know that because we got the data now from the exact snapshot in your gut that tells us exactly what's happening and exactly what they are doing. So we actually know how to implement the changes to a very, very precise level. It's not going to the farmers and get a, a regular probiotic or prebiotic. They may even be counterproductive because it might actually increase some of these bacteria that you don't want. It's not common, but it's more like you really need to know the real strain and the, the real bacteria that are working for you. That's in the right diet because there is another element, let's say, connected to that, that then when we analyze the DNA, with our reports, we are able to tell which sort of genes they are regulating. Let's say there are genes that some people have more propensity to digest fiber better than others. And these specific genes, they are called the farmer genes or the caveman warrior gene, if you like, <laughs> because there are two different, these are the two main types. So if you have a genetics of that is more close to your ancestor as a caveman, you have less of a propensity to digest certain type of fiber, like from all grains, because you have been evolving in an area of the world, which you relied primarily on hunting. So you should have a diet more prone to good paleo sort of diet, good protein based and resistant starch, which is an indigestible prebiotic fiber that some of the bacteria in your colon, they are able to transform in butyrate, which is also increases your mood and serotonin levels. So this is just an example to see how mental health is connected to your microbiome. And then we also got a gene that is able to control how you absorb or metabolize certain type of fiber and create a mental health effect. Then. Another classic example is that we have genes like that have been investigated for a very long time now, like MATHFR is a classic one everyone is talking about, which regulates the folate cycle, let's say. MATHFR converts the folate benign 
the folate that you get from your diet into the active form of folate called 5-tetrahydrofolate. And this molecule is an essential molecule for many other pathways because it is a sort of a gasoline that gives the gas to enzymes that they are, let's say, making your neurotransmitters. They are regulating your DNA replication so you don't develop cancer. They are making hormones. It's, it's a long list. But let's say people, I'll give you an example, people that they got that sort of MATHFR mutation, it's quite, that's why it's so, this is a classic example in epigenetics because if you get that one-point mutation, you decrease the activity of these enzymes 90%. Women, they cannot have children. They are very likely to be. That's why they, every time now GPs that they're looking at these genes, because if there is a really homozygous recessive, the resection is called 677. If they got the 677 mutation, then they are really likely to have some really serious implications in their health. And you have to supplement them with the 5-tetrahydrofolate with supplements. And also that particular mutation they found recently that mothers that they are homozygous for that particular mutation, they are 12 times higher to develop children with autism. So again, it connects on another dimension to health problems that doesn't just develop in themselves, but also in their future children. I feel like if this is really kind of giving you that baseline understanding of where you're at and where best to tweak and like you say, turn on and off things and supplement as required, it's not something that should just be isolated to particular specialists that get referred to. I mean, I feel like this is the kind of science that should be across GPs, pediatricians, psychologists, psychiatrists, anyone that's operating on a day today, how do we bridge that gap between what we've talked about with the science today to getting it to a point in making this part of the day-to-day -day of every healthcare provider? Yeah, and that's such a great question. <laughs> you, you, you come to the conclusion yourself and it's so relevant. And that is the challenge and the transition that's happening now. And this is happening on a global level. I have to say the Asian countries are quite developed. So if you go to like Korea, China, they are extremely onto this. They are actually moving very fast. The U.S. obviously is moving super fast into this. That's why in America, there is this growing trend of having genetic counselors, that they are collaborating with GP psychologists, like myself. They are collaborating with all these mainstream doctors to achieve a common goal. But covering the gap, of obviously of the biochemistry, the genetics that is so complex that you really have to have an individual that can, let's say, it's a bit like I was mentioning before, like it's like having a Ferrari team in which you have, let's say the engineers, let's say they are the epigenetics scientists, that they are collaborating with the doctors that they're all trying to set up the car so that the pilot can drive it without pressing it. And of course, it is, it's a bit of a teamwork. So in America, that's why we got so many genetic counselors. We're starting to have them in Australia as well, but it's the very beginning here. And there's also universities now, for med school, they also run in normal medicine MD degrees in combination with a PhD component so that 
the next generation of doctors in the next five to 10 years, they will be much more comfortable in evaluating all these type of information. But it's definitely people like me, and this is our challenge, we really need to talk to each other. And I collaborate with quite a few pediatricians, psychologists, psychiatrists, and it's a wonderful collaborations because it's really sharing our expertise. I talk to psychologists and say, well, now that I know this, it's so much easier to look at the response of my patient, let's say in terms of antidepressants. We are able to map how the antidepressants are working, let's say, on specific brain receptors or the potential level that neurotransmitters can be so that when a psychiatrist or psychologist is evaluating a patient, they say, wait a second, I know from the genetics that you're likely to have that particular receptor that might be less effective with this medication. Then I also have to keep that in mind. Then we can also operate to give the patient a certain type of diet, lifestyle, again, natural supplementations, and that can make a big effect and may perhaps decrease in the medications. In a way, a classic example, one of my patients is a nine-year-old patient with ADHD that has been on medication since he was six. And by looking at the genetics, we could actually give him a diet that, that was dairy-free, gluten-free, histamine, uh, lowered in histamines, and with few natural supplements, the ADHD symptoms decreased dramatically in about eight months. So it could go from being at the bottom of his class, now he's stopping every class, he's playing three sports, and his psychiatrist decreased the Lexapro 50% in about eight months. And he wasn't even talking to me. He just saw the effects of what has been done in a more holistic way. And some of the psychologists I talked to, for them it is extremely important to understand this and then apply it with their patients. And so the back and forth between me and them, it's fantastic. And that's what we should do moving forward. Yeah. And something that I'm curious about too, and I'd love to be able to break down some of these barriers and build some of these connections, because I guess if you looked at this from a clinical point of view or from a healthcare provider point of view, that's almost like there's this spectrum where you could be on and I'm not saying anyone is on either side of this camp, but there's all the way down the bottom, which is let's medicate absolutely everything. And the answer is give medication. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's this, we can solve everything with kombucha or like there's no medication and let's give people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there's somewhere in the middle where it all meets. And I feel like some of this science and the facts behind it, almost like, like you say, the blueprint kind of helps guide people through that process. It doesn't say that one replaces the other or anything. It's about how do we combine things and provide the right environment to the right balance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, And exactly what you just said is exactly that because it's not that the extreme, both extremes are not correct, if you like, because, and we can prove that scientifically. I mean, there is so much data and papers, but And again, it goes back to the precision medicine ambition to get both sides and then creating the right balance with the medication, drugs. And from my biochemistry point of view, a natural molecule or a molecule created in the lab, it doesn't make any difference. They both work if they need to work. And in fact, a lot of the pharmaceutical industry is based on molecules 
that they are coming from nature anyway. They're just branding it. So it's yeah. not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of medication you see they're coming from extracts as well as, and then maybe purified or synthetic grain men, but it's not. And that's what the perception is like. Our biochemistry can go in multiple directions. It can be coming from a plant or a marine organisms or synthesized in a lab. But the body doesn't care, really. It's a molecular effect that counts and trying to ascertain that and quantify that with scientific tools. Love it. At the Spring Summit coming up in September, we're going to be doing a session which we're dubbing all of the omics because I feel like it's a topic that we can't just leave to this one particular podcast and you'll be moderating a session with a few other people who are deep into this space. It's still early days in the planning as we record this episode, but is there anything that excites you about doing this particular session at the summit? Oh yeah, I'm so excited about that because amongst other omics... (laughs) Mm-hmm. We'll be talking about, obviously, the epigenetics and nutrigenomics, but also one of the latest one is called connectomics, which is the actual side that is emerging in the neuroscience and molecular psychiatry that is aiming to decipher the entire neural network, the connections, the entire neural connections and the map of the brain, which is using AI and again, machine learning is what I call the Google map of the brain. <laughs> which I'm sure that the expert that we'll discuss later on, it will give you a, a fascinating overview on that. And that's again, is one of those fields that can be connected to the epigenetics. And then by having the Google map, then we cannot just know what genes are faulty, but where they are in which region of the brain, the seating or the river that they are located and trying to make yeah, better treatment again and diagnosis. So very excited. <laughs> Should be a great session. We'll have to make sure we put it at a time when everyone can be, we won't put it straight after afternoon tea or anything. We'll make sure we've all got our concentration faces on so we can delve deep into that one. But lastly, you're pretty active in the THT Plus community as a member, and we've got a good diverse group of members and always new people joining on. How can us as a community, and I guess the broader listenership of Talking Health Tech, help you? We've got the clinicians and software developers and then those making decisions. How can the broader health ecosystem help out the cause that you're working on today? Look, as we said earlier, like there are three elements. There will be patients in which they want to know about their health and we are more happy to help them in that directions. The clinicians, obviously, just talk to us if you are a pediatrician, if you are a psychologist, if you are a psychiatrist, if you are a GP, because all those elements that you come across during the day, like diabetes, inflammation, cardiovascular disease, depression, ADHD, autism, OCD, all these problems that you're dealing with every day, we can assist at genetic level to give a much better tools from the holistic point of view that could make your job much easier without using the medication to death. And a lot of at GP, they want to really cut down on the type of medications that they are using. They're also causing side effects. So it's a really win-win because it's a better outcome for the patient. It's an easier approach for you to deal with the patients and having less stress. 
doing your sessions with them and because you want to see happy patient. That's the commonality that I see with all the people I talk to as professionals that JP, psychology, psychology, I've stressed out people because they have to deal with a lot. <laughs> and if you give them a hand to help their patients, they are happier, happier professions. The patients are definitely happier. And it's just uh, a better outcome. And it's also health science because the more we do this, the more we know about the biochemical individuality of people that they are treated. So, and from the software developer point of view, fantastic opportunity to develop platform, maybe like the one that you have, or like a hot dog, I call it for epigenetics, like the next level, you got hot dog platforms that they are organizing GPs and the patient. Next level, let's organize the epigenetic scientists with the neurologist and the GP and more connected web that is that Ferrari team that can work with the patients for better health outcomes. And that's where the development could be very useful. And I think it will be an absolute game changer also in that space, because that's where in the US it's already happening. So we want more of that. Super exciting. And look, Valerio, I really appreciate you taking us through all of it and keeping us engaged throughout the conversation. We'll put the details for everything you do in the show notes of this episode so people can get in touch. And of course, our THC Plus members can connect with you in the community. Also check out the session at the upcoming Spring Summit in September as well. So look, thank you so much for making the time, buddy. Look forward to chatting with you soon. Likewise, it was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen.